The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. This is the last full episode of Subgenre Season 2, Charming Thieves, and you are here for the second half of our look at the 2001 Steven Soderbergh casino heist picture, Ocean's Eleven. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. Subgenre is your home for the movie subgenres you forgot you even loved. And back with me to cap off this spectacular episode and season is my somewhat truncated collection of most wanteds, Nick Heim and Alan Mall. We owe you from the thing with the guy in the place and we'll never forget it. This is Ocean's Eleven, part two. And it's roundtable time here at Studio K. We are back in studio again with the aforementioned subgenre guest hosts. To my left is playwright Alan Mall. Hey, Alan. Hey, Josh. I'm thrilled to have survived part one, and I'm optimistic about getting through part two. Well, you're the only one. And across from me is film nerd Nick Heim. Nick? <laughs> All-around nerd Nick Heim. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited. I think I, I mostly remember what happened in this movie, and I can't wait to dive in. They are well-fed, properly inebriated. They are present, and I'm going to assume thoroughly exhausted from the first part that we did, because we're doing this as a two-part episode. If you have not listen to part one of Ocean's Eleven, please go do that first. This part will make a whole lot more sense if you do that, but we are now here and ready to see this thing through to its conclusion. Am I right? Oh, yes. You absolutely. were right. Part one was a blast, and we will miss Fabian and Charlotte, but we can hold up the torch for them. That's not a phrase, hold up the torch, but we will <laughs> bear a torch for them. We'll carry a torch. Let's explain a couple of things. First off, you mentioned Fabian and Charlotte. So Fabian Marquez and Charlotte Moore Lambert, they were with us in part one, and they are not here now because we killed them. <laughs> <laughs> they are not with us today. Fabian's off doing whatever Fabian does. God knows. Yeah, uh, Charlotte knows? was taken down by uh, the latest variant. <laughs> yes. But everything's fine. The world is fine. We're all fine. <laughs> it's all fine. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it'll all turn out great. So that's the first explanation. Sex and second. Let's try that again. Sex. <clears throat> sex and explanation. The sex and the explanation. Sex explanation. <laughs> the second explanation is if you are used to listening to subgenre and you're just jumping into this, we sound a little different this time around. And that is because we are doing this roundtable style and we got a few of us. So if it sounds different, if it plays a little different, that's just the way it's going to be, people. That's how this episode is, both part one and part two. But that's okay. That's yeah, okay. I mean, and we're all affecting American accents. We're all <laughs> native Australians. And I have watched all the Police Academy movies oh. hoping to perfect my American dialect. I want to hear your uh, machine gun noises. <laughs> you will not. And it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> it is Don Cheadle. So let's do a little flashback here to the last time okay. and talk about how we feel so far about part one of Ocean's Eleven. Well, I think it was good but it felt like only half a movie. 
<laughs> I really enjoyed chatting about it with everybody and getting to kind of go into the details there. But the big takeaway for me from the first half of the movie is what a good job Soderbergh does of breaking it into little mini adventures. Yeah. You know, you have all these little tiny side quests and, you know, it really starts ramping up. And I think this time we're going to talk about the main heist, which should be fun. Yeah. So many heist movies live or die based on like how much you can enjoy the setup of the heist and Ocean's Eleven nails it. Like you would enjoy just watching them prepare for all kinds of crimes, much less the great one that we're about to talk about. Yeah, or even not crimes. I mean, just preparing for like a dinner party or something. That first half of the movie too, besides the mini crimes, which I'm with you, I, I love the whole little side quest as you've been calling them, perfect description of them. I also like the fact that we spend this whole first half of the movie really developing this character team, who they are, what they do, what they don't want to do, and that's all going to play itself out in one way or another in what we're about to talk about today. Okay, so let's reset the scene for this thing. So okay. Ocean's Eleven, this is the 2001 version. There is an older movie. It's a 1960 Rat Pack movie. It's a heist film. It's similar, but it is not the same. And I think we established last time, none of us have even seen that thing to be able to compare it to. Well, that's because we're film enthusiasts. And what kind of film enthusiast would watch a classic film? I was not enthused. <laughs> would watch a Rat Pack film. Yeah. Where, where are those guys ever going to go? Yeah, I mean, they're a flash in the pan. This was released in 2001, banner year, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots Some of, things happened. Lots of interesting events. Released by Warner Brothers in December of 2001, of course, directed by Steven Soderbergh, who has done tons and tons and tons of amazing movies, including Out of Sight and Contagion, which I watched at the beginning of lockdown and shouldn't have. That was a terrible idea. I watched Alfred in Contagion. Did you watch The Road too? Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) This was his follow-up to his best director Oscar for Traffic, which he got in 2000 and also the nomination for what was it? I want to say Being John Malkovich. No, it's the one with Julia Roberts. Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich. (laughs) Being Aaron Brockovich. Being Aaron Brockovich. Brockovich. And she goes through a door and ends up inside of a leopard tube top. Produced by Jerry Weintraub, written by Ted Griffin. And, you know, I've, I've only seen one other Ted Griffin movie. I think I mentioned it last time, which was Ravenous. Have you seen any other Ted Griffin movies? Uh, Matchstick Men. I have never seen Oh, that. it's good. It's good. It has a lot of the fun of this movie and Nicolas Cage, who's always unpredictable. But no, it's good Nicolas Cage, not bad Nicolas Cage. Okay, that was what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's worth checking out. And, of course, has a, a cast of thousands, including George Clooney and Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts and Andy Garcia, co-stars Matt Damon, Elliot Gould, Carl Reiner, Don Cheadle, who we'll talk about more this time, oh, I'm, I'm sure. sure. Mm. Bernie Max, Scott Kahn, Casey Affleck, Eddie Jemison, and Shao Bo Chin. You guys ready? Oh, I'm always ready. Dive in. Well then, let's talk about our feature presentation. Our feature presentation is Ocean's Eleven from 2001. When we left off last time, Mm -hmm. our team had gone through the ringer in terms of trying to put together all of the pieces and people and information in order to make this once-in-a-lifetime heist possible. And the last little bit we got was Rusty, Brad Pitt's character, talking to Linus, Matt Damon's character, and trying to get him confident and give him the information that he needs to be able to pull off a job that he is taking over from George Clooney, who has been caught talking to Julia Roberts and now has been red flagged and can't go anywhere near the casino. I mean, they do this several times in the movie where it seems like they've made the fatal mistake. Right. And it seems like Clooney going to talk to Julia Roberts is the, you know, they're going to be the nail in the coffin. But there's always more twists to come. And those twists are going to start with Fight Night. 
So we learned very early on that this whole thing is going to center around this one particular night at the casino. The fact that it is a fight night is what is going to grow the amount of money that's sitting in this bank vault to an amount that makes it worth going and doing all of this stuff and potentially getting caught, but to steal that money. So it was a hundred and uh, 150 million. Something like that. Something yeah. Like I think that. they said at least 150. Yeah. Enough that there would be an eight figure payout for every member of the 11 man team. Right. Mm-hmm. Just, just like this podcast. <laughs> Mine is all the money they sp- they've spent at the airplane hangar building sets and of course. hiring uh, and all the money we to, gave to Fabian Elliot, for his Elliot Elliot connection last You time. have to spend money to steal money. That's what my preacher dad always told me growing up. <laughs> you know, it's a real life lesson. It is fight night now. And what needs to happen on fight night is a few different things. The first of which is that Saul, who is playing the character of, what is it, Zerga. Yeah. Uh, Lyman, Lyman Zerga. He has to receive some jewels that he has told Terry Benedict are coming so that Terry Benedict can put them in the safe. Yeah. And the whole plan depends on this thing getting into the safe. And I mean, it seems like at the beginning he wants to go, Carl Reiner wants to go with the case and is not allowed to. The delivery is made in the circle drive by the twins. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Who show up all over the place. And I cannot believe that nobody puts two and two together that these two guys traveling together all the time are the same people. Yeah, and the they, constantly fighting members of the team. That's the one you want. No one will remember the two guys that always argue with each other. Right. And that are always getting the head of security to come over and deal with them because they're making a commotion. And speaking of commotion, so we get the jewels delivered to Saul. Mm-hmm. His bodyguards then are these twins who are following him, quote unquote bodyguards. Him and Benedict and the twins are walking across the casino floor. In the time that they're walking across the casino floor, we get a view of a couple of other people there. Frank's out dealing blackjack. That's Bernie Mac's character. Mm-hmm. And George Clooney is sitting at the slots where obviously he is not supposed to be, but he is spotted there nonetheless, reported by Benedict. Hey, he's over in the slots. And it looks like maybe that's going to be it until. Yet again, you think, uh-oh, well, you know, he's, he's made an emotional decision and it's compromised the whole heist. And the thing that almost gives the thing away is not Danny sitting at the slots. It's some rando who yells... Bucky Buchanan! (laughs) It's Bucky Buchanan, who is a a character played by Richard Reed, who I thought was the dad on My Three Sons or... (laughs) It might be. Brady Bunch or something. I have no No, idea. No, no, that's a different guy. Different guy. But is sort of like this overly tanned South Beach, uh, Fort Lauderdale sort of guy who yells at Saul, obviously knows Saul, yells at Saul across the room, calls him by his real name and says, hey, it's me, to which Saul then has to play it off. It's another one of those moments where you're like, oh, okay, this thing is is done for. And they keep building them in just when you think, okay, things are rolling along. Uh Uh-oh. And I assumed that this guy, because he's so heavily made up, I figured he was like a member of the crew or a cameo in disguise, but it doesn't seem to be that way. It's just Bucky Buchanan. just Bucky, not Bucky Barnes, (laughs) Bucky Buchanan. And Saul placed this off by speaking in soft Russian to the twins. And, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. And the twins turn around and cart this guy off like they're taking him to the gulag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Always a good move just to pick somebody else up in another man's casino and then take them somewhere else. Yeah. A, 
That's a power move. Never go to a second location <laughs> with a Russian <laughs> with a gangster. <laughs> so he's gone. That moment is saved, maybe, but it turns on the radar of Andy Garcia. It, right. it he now on. knows something is weird. Something is weird, but he, it hasn't been proven that it is too weird. Right. And so thinking that there's a big payday in it for him, Terry agrees to take possession of Saul's jewels and says, okay, my guys are going to take this down to the vault. You can stand here and watch it on the monitors. You cannot go with it. Yeah. Doesn't it give him a whole list? It's like, there's a lot of reasons. Like there's rules for one, insurance for two, but most importantly, I don't trust you. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> and Andy Garcia, again, just really good at kind of holding this all together because he seems very competent and very on top of things, which makes the heist seem less and less likely with each passing scene. He does a control move here as well as the, you know, hey, you can watch this on the monitors. Saul's objecting and Terry tells him, this is the offer. You take it or you leave. Right. He's like, okay, you leave me no choice. Yeah. Great. Saul's in position. The jewels are in whatever position they're going to be in shortly. Back at the hideout, Basher. Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle. <laughs> it's um, me, Don Cheadle from Hotel Rwanda. <laughs> Ain't it time to go to Hotel Rwanda? <laughs> later, later. He is packing up the van. <laughs> The lorry, thank you. The lorry. <laughs> they are packing up the pinch, which they had stolen from Caltech or whatever it was yeah. the last time. They're packing it up in a van. Caltech so just has a city-leveling EMP <laughs> built and ready to go in one of their classrooms. And that's why I don't trust anyone from California. Well, that's fair. Fabian, I hope you heard that, okay? For legal purposes, it wasn't really Caltech. We do trust you, Caltech. Don't <laughs> sick your lawyers on me. <laughs> They are packing up, and as they are packing up, we get an interesting camera angle that at the time doesn't make a ton of sense. But we are watching them load up the van through the windshield of some other vehicle that has a pine tree air freshener hanging from it. Yes, and I actually made a note. I, I just was looking through my notes here, and I have a, just the note that says, air freshener, question mark? Because I really was like, what is this shot? I should have known that there was more to it than just a weird shot choice. And the air freshener, obviously, we'll figure out what that's about in a minute. But our twins who have carted away Bucky Buchanan, he's wherever he is, bullet in the back of his skull in the, <laughs> in the family restroom. It's been tied to those balloons from earlier. Let go. <laughs> They have changed clothes, which they, they're Clark Kenting it, right? Yeah. They, they've changed the clothes, and so nobody can tell it's them. And they are now posing as hotel staff, and they are rolling a food cart through the hotel. Or what looks like a food cart. Yeah. I mean, and this is the beginning of the heist in earnest now, because we've got the cart ready to go, and it's it's starting to all move. Yeah, underneath the tablecloth that's got all the food and everything on it, this is actually a cash cart. It's not a food yeah. cart, it's a cash cart. This is what uh, Yen ultimately is going to be hiding in. We know that because we saw Yen practicing for it in the airplane hangar sometime prior. Yeah, yes. I mean, there had to have been another way to get in that thing that was not <laughs> folding yourself in the worst possible way. Just it, watching it made me uncomfortable. It's Calzone style. It's just, you know... <laughs> It was calzone style. It was like New York pizza slice style. Up in the suite, you've got Rusty, Brad Pitt, mm -hmm. and Livingstone, Eddie Jemison, who is our Radar O'Reilly high-techy yeah. guy. Sort of high-techy guy. He's you know, Radio Shack. They are watching through their monitor as we now introduce Matt Damon onto the floor, Linus, and he is posing as a gaming inspector and right. catches 
Terry Benedict as he's coming across the floor. Hey, I need five minutes of your time. Please escort me over here to this blackjack pit. And I mean, it's really like this plan requires all of these members to be not only very good at various thievery, but also improv. Like they all have to be good <laughs> improv actors as well. They're all yes and. Yes, yes, exactly. He poses a Sheldon Willis from the Nevada Gaming Commission. Mm-hmm. Perfect name. Tells them they've got a problem in one of the pits. Says, hey, follow me. As they are walking over to whatever problem there is at this pit, we cut away for a minute and we see that Danny is now at the Kino bar. Danny is watching everything, keeping an eye on it. And Tess passes him going the other direction and he follows. What happens this time when he follows Tess is different than the last time, because this time when he follows Tess, there's a couple of really big dudes that follow him. Right. And these are, uh, I'm assuming, Terry Benedict's heavies. Yeah, the goon squad. Hired goons. So, okay, lots has been set up here. Terry's on the move. Linus is distracting him for a minute. Mm -hmm. Danny is following Tess, and Terry Benedict's guys are following Clooney. And while that's going on, Yin is putting himself, stuffing himself uncomfortably into the center of the cash cart. He's calzoning. He is starting what is 30 minutes of airtime. That's all he has. This is the moment when they ask him, like, you know, it's like, you're going to be okay in there? And then he flips them the bird as they close it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the last thing we get yeah, from like, I've before. done this plenty of times. <laughs> I have calzoned myself into smaller spaces than this. Thank you very much. This will be the worst possible death. <laughs> and so we have a ticking clock. We have 30 minutes from this moment, click, when they shut the lid before Yin is dead and nobody gets the money. Couldn't they drill a hole in the lid? Right? Why why did it have to be airtight? We made jewels in (laughs) that suite. You couldn't drill air holes? Just want to raise the stakes, Nick. Yeah, I mean, drill a a hole in the bottom. Why would you you make... (laughs) No one would see the hole in the bottom. (laughs) Why would you make a cash cart that was airtight? No, never. (laughs) I mean, no real cash cart. Cash is not... An, an aerobic <laughs> exercise. You know, it was the early 2000s. I don't know what went That's on back true. then. That's it's true. possible. Yeah. 30 minutes is counting. So during this 30 minutes, Linus is out on the floor. He's telling Benedict that Frank, who is now going again by the name Ramon Escalante mm-hmm. and dealing in pit five, he is a criminal with a record, which is true. He's telling him straight up the truth. He is. And that the Nevada Gaming Commission, which this is the part that's not true, has caught on to this and is now duly letting him know so that this guy can be fired. And it leads to some great Bernie Macking. Oh, it does. And it also leads to Terry testing Linus after being put on alert by the guy that called out Saul. So Terry tests Linus to see if he's even from the gaming commission by saying, hey, how long have you been at the commission? Oh, I've been there a few months or whatever. Hey, do you know so-and-so over there at the commission? And there's this kind of a pause where you don't know if Linus is going to get it right or not. And he says, not since he died three months ago or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, no, he obviously did his homework, which is good. But you do have, they stretch out that moment just enough that you're like, oh, well, this is, this is all screwed. And I kept wondering, too, was he being fed that information through an earpiece because there was the pause, but you never get whether or not that happened. Yeah, I didn't get the impression it was through an earpiece, but I mean, it very easily could have been. He and Benedict escort Bernie Mac to a back room where things are going to play out here in a second. As he does that, here come the twins with their cart out of the elevator, and they have left the dishes and flower arrangement and everything else that made this thing look like a dinner cart. They've left that behind, and now it looks like they're pushing a cash cart because they have what? Change clothes again. Yes. yes. No, it's really the story of these two guys changing outfits. That's the true <laughs> tale of Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, it's a quick change act. It's a fashion show. It's a fashion show. Uh-huh. 
We are back before the Bernie Mac stuff, which I know we keep teasing, but it's so worth it. But before (laughs) the Bernie Mac stuff, we have to go to the restaurant first because we let Danny go after Tess a few minutes ago with Danny being followed himself. So he's at the restaurant. Tess sees him. This time, instead of sitting there, Tess gets up and walks over to him and is like, no, 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 no. Leave now. She knows he's up to something. Right. Doesn't know what it is exactly, but knows that he's up to something and tells him, look, I don't care what you're up to. No matter what it is, it's not going to win me back ever. To which Danny diffuses it and said, Tess, I came here to say goodbye. He is taking his toys and going home. All of the conflict will be resolved with the bad guy's winning. Danny is implying. You almost imagine his hands are going up as he's saying this. No, it, it's a good move. But you, again, it does seem like he's blowing the whole thing. He's letting the cat out of the bag too much. He's letting her know. And it feels like, because of the way they've set this up on purpose, his personal feelings are getting in the way of letting this play out correctly. He tells her he's there to say goodbye, kisses her cheek, does the whole goodbye thing. And at the moment, I'm trying to remember when I first saw this, whether I bought that. And I think I did. Yeah, I don't remember. And I mean, it was too long ago to remember if I bought it or not. But yeah, I mean, it's well played. You could very easily think that this is a sincere moment. Yeah, so he leans in, he gives her the kiss, he says bye. And she basically is like, yeah, bye, and heads off. As he turns to leave, there are the goons. Yes. They're there for him. He knows what they're there for. And that's it. He's shuffled away by them, I'm assuming, the same way that Bucky Buchanan was shuffled away by the twins. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it seems like, you know, the end of the road for old Danny, other than the fact that he's George Clooney and the main character in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Could we we kill him off here just like they did in the the beginning of Scream when they killed off Drew Barrymore? Like, is that possible? Yeah, exactly. In the back room. Okay, we've tease this up. So let's get to the back room of the casino. In the back room, there is Terry Benedict. There is Linus posing as the Nevada Gaming Commission guy. Mm -hmm. And there is Frank posing as Ramon Escalante, the criminal dealer. Right. He has been told that he is no longer able to deal at the casino here because Nevada Gaming Commission says he has a criminal record. He has got to go and Bernie Mac is set loose. Yeah. I mean, this is this is why you hire Bernie Mac for this part is because you want him to just have a scene where he gets to just rant and rave for several minutes and it, it's all good. And every bit of it is telling Linus how racist he is. Yes. They might as well call it White Jack. That <laughs> is the first Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. What are you going to let the man do? Not going to let the man deal cards. <laughs> <laughs> and Linus has to play affronted yes. by being called a racist. You know, we at the Nevada Gaming Commission, <laughs> what is it? Would never think of discriminating against colored people. Which, you know, they had to have practiced that line in the, in the you know, the heist mobile before doing this. <laughs> which gets Bernie Mac immediately up out of his seat, you know, and telling Terry, better talk to it. <laughs> <laughs> That scene is worth the price of admission. And it goes on. It goes on. There's a few other things that happen in there, too, I think, right? Yeah. I don't remember them, though. <laughs> <laughs> you breathe deeply like you were going to save me there, and there's just nothing. Nope, nothing. nothing. <sighs> no, the problem is, like, to take a, a moment... Like, as the movie gets better, my notes get sparser. (laughs) I have so many fewer notes for the second half than the first half. Mm -hmm. Because I was, like, watching it much more intently. Rusty, up in the suite, signals to the twins that now is the time to deliver that cash cart they've been pushing around Mm -hmm. with Yen inside to the vault. And so they push it over to, I guess, what is the one door that leads to every back room in this casino Mm -hmm. um, and proceed to start 
another argument about who's supposed to have the access card. These guys have, so, they start so many arguments. Someone should remember them at some point. No, no one does. No Never. one remembers Never. them. And, and so we get this argument about, do you have the card? I don't have the card. Oh, you're so stupid. Blah, 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 blah. And there is one other guard, like a real guard who's standing there like, guys, shut up, shut up. I'll just, I'll, you get in on my card this time, but you got to remember your card the next time. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Which is a great life hack. Just like, you know, start a stupid argument in the hopes that someone will let you into a confidential location. Exactly. And I think the way that convinces them to even do that in the first place is he says, these are Terry Benedict's. Like we're delivering Terry mm -hmm. Benedict's things. You got to let us in. Yeah. I mean, Terry's name carries a lot of weight and they definitely use it to their advantage. Inside somewhere behind this door, somewhere where they're trying to get is Saul. Saul is watching his jewels that have been delivered earlier being taken. They're going down in an elevator. They're going to the vault and they are put in the vault at the same time as this cart that the twins have brought through. So the cart gets wheeled in, the cart gets parked into position. Okay, great, the cart's in the vault. The jewels in the case get brought in by guards. They're in there. Okay, great, they're in the vault. Problem is, the guy in charge of delivering those jewels to the vault just decides to slap them down on top of the cart and right. block the lid. The first time I watched it, I remember thinking, oh, he's trapped in there now. But that does not actually the problem we end up encountering later. But it, you know, it, it's definitely where your mind goes first, I think. Yeah, this briefcase will be a liability yes, soon. Yes. Well, and there's so many places in this film where the whole thing could fall apart if a single person makes one different decision. You know, and I think they really play that up for suspense a lot, where it's down to these, you know, you need that guy to allow you to go back for your wallet or you need this guy to not call the main office and check on whatever you know or you need this guy to take the cart for you otherwise the whole thing's a failure and the guy suffocates it, it makes me wonder how many unsuccessful criminals in real life have been inspired by heist movies thinking that it's a lot easier than it actually is like oh yeah things luck always pans out in my favor yeah, and that's yeah. how i'm going to get into this 7-eleven and take 500 dollars exactly. there's a great scene in the good place like that where the one character tries to hide in a safe and just suffocate. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, I love that show. It's so good. So while this is going on, and understandably so, up in the control room, Saul is watching this happen. And we remember from last time, Saul wasn't doing so great from the first moment we saw Saul. Right. Saul has, he has ulcers. He's got other things going on. He's always popping antacids. And he looks a little worse for wear now than before. Definitely starting to sweat, looking yeah. a little peaked. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems, again, like another place where it's all about to fall apart. And another place where it could fall apart is with Don Cheadle. He is given the cue by Rusty and Livingston to do his thing. And his thing is to drive this big van up to the top of a parking garage. I, I'm assuming the MGM parking garage. And park it in the right place that has this giant city leveling yeah. device in it called yeah. the pinch. The pinch. And the pinch is there because it's supposed to create an EMP. Well, why do we need an EMP? We got to knock out the power because we have to get through all the security and the lasers and the piranha fish and whatever. And apparently this pinch is going to help us do that. Frank then at the end of this encounter he's had with Linus as the NGC inspector and Terry Benedict, Frank is finally shown off the premises by the casino manager uh, played by Michael Delano. And this leaves Linus with Terry to kind of go the other way and walk back onto the casino floor. As they are walking back toward this one door that leads everybody in and out, 
Linus makes an excuse and says, oh, I left my pager back in the room. I need to go and get that. Benedict at this point has enough trust in the guy that he says, can you find your way back? Yes, I can. And sends him off to do his thing, which leads me to talking about what a pager is. <laughs> it's yeah. true. Well, because it was this was filmed in like 2000. So it's like plenty of people had cell phones at that point. The pager, I think, is intentionally just like, in case this guy wasn't dorky enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it had turned into kind of an uptight person's tool at that point because the young hip people, who were switching over to cell phones and like old guys with pocket protectors had pagers still or doctors or, you know, business guys. So I I agree. I think it's a purposeful choice to make him seem more square. Well, it works. Yes, it works. He seems very square, square enough that Terry says, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you wander through my secure casino. <laughs> and Terry has other places to be. I think that helps, too, because, again, remember, it's fight night. Yeah. Like, he's got a ton of stuff to get done so that he can actually go to this fight. And so he's off to do that. Kind yeah, of we're stuff. not even to the fight yet. No, definitely not, because we still have to go somewhere back in the bowels of this casino. There is a windowless room where right now Danny is being guarded over by those two goons who took him away from the restaurant. And then the big guy comes to pummel him. Danny looks around and susses out what's going on and says, "Uh uh-huh, no cameras in this room, Uh right? Nobody can see what's happening here. (laughs) Mr. Benedict is not coming. This is not a meeting. (laughs) Right, he's he's not coming to this. But who is coming is a character who will later be referred to as Bruiser. Uh, played by Scott L. Schwartz. Bruiser is one of the most like dead-on casting decisions they could have made. Oh, he yeah. looks the part, absolutely. Yeah, he looks like central casting for Thug, you know, like big bruiser goon. With that little kind of like hangdog expression on his face, it's a little bit mopey, which kind of gives away that there's more going on with this guy than just his... Yeah, he ends up doing a good job with this part. Like, he, it could be a lot smaller, and he, he handles it well. And he is there obviously to rough Danny up. The other two goons are aware that this happens, so this must happen often. And they stand themselves outside to man the door, shut the door, and leave Bruiser alone with Danny. So looks like it's not going to go well. We'll come back to them because we've got a lot of intercutting going on in this sequence. Yeah, now it starts to get pretty hectic because we're going all over the place. It does. And we sort of jumped ahead earlier in the timeline because right about now is when that whole like cash cart gets to the vault thing and the the diamonds or the jewels get put on top of the cart. That all happens at this point right now as well, which is making Saul sweat even worse and really looking really, really looking bad. He looks terrible. He looks terrible. Who also looks terrible is Danny because we cut back to him to see a bruiser cracking him in the jaw as hard as he can and knocking Danny to the floor, which you think, okay, here comes the beating, but that's the only hit he gets. Yeah, he starts being like, hey man, what what was that for? No, dude, what are you doing? Like, you weren't supposed to do that yet, I think is the word, the yet gets Mm -hmm. thrown around here. Yeah, and then bruiser like has a personality change and apologizes. And then you get this really light moment of just like, gentle early aughts misogynist humor it's like how's your wife oh, pregnant again <laughs> just a line that like it will is. not get written into a movie in 2022 no it's a very like baby boomer humor bit. yeah <laughs> my wife and her baby <laughs> the fetus <laughs> he obviously knows bruiser they have some sort of relationship that goes back and so that is what has saved him here i'm assuming plus a few bucks yeah mm. i mean and all, it also it's yet another moment where you were like oh it's all ruined oh wait, this was part of the plan. Yeah. And they play that same beat over and over, but somehow it keeps working every time. Like you keep getting fooled over and over again. It's sort of like we talked earlier about the, you know, everyone needs to be good at improv. This entire movie is no and. This is going to happen. No, 
and and then you move it forward. And this is one of those moments because Bruiser is not going to beat up Danny. What he is going to do is he is going to help Danny. He's going to give him the boost he needs to climb up into the air duct that's in the top of this room and let Danny go do whatever Danny needs to go do right now. We're off to the fight now. Finally. Finally. Ruben is waiting in this boxing audience. He is sitting near Benedict, who is now there, and Tess, who is now there. Right. So Elliot Gould, I need to take a moment. I realized last time I messed up and I identified him as Rachel's dad from Friends and he is not. He was Ross and Monica's dad from Friends. And I don't want to get your letters, people. (laughs) Fans of the 90s super comedy Friends. Never heard of it. (laughs) All right. Now I feel like my soul is unburdened and we can continue. Thank you. That's the thing you needed to unburden. That's what I needed to tell the people. Well, then we can move forward. All right. Fight. It's happening. Ruben's there. Benedict's there. Tess is there. And while the fight starts to happen... Back in the control room, our ailing Saul finally collapses. Yeah. He, he sees the, the case put where it's not supposed to be <laughs> heavy breathing. <laughs> and you want that again? <laughs> this is so bad. Don't do that again. <laughs> That's breathing, my Carl Reiner impression. Yeah. Breathing down your neck. No one's breathing down your neck. Just Carl Reiner. <laughs> he... <laughs> That's a flashback to episode six of subgenre of this season. Check it out. Go back and check it out. Okay, so he collapses. He's looked terrible this whole time. He finally collapses to the floor. They need a doctor. And so someone picks up the phone and they call the doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, the doctor that arrives, because the phone call didn't go where it was it was supposed to go, obviously. It got redirected. It got redirected. The doctor that arrives is not a doctor. It is Brad Pitt. In the best wig of the entire (laughs) film. The wig he is wearing here made me pause the movie because I had to laugh for a moment. Oh, yeah. It's very like all the president's men, like, you know, it's like 70s reporter. And it's yet another moment where you're like, oh, this was all part of the plan. Oh, I'm very stupid. Like he's more obvious than the twins. And it's just right. It's just the wig and like a pair of glasses. They didn't even try. No No. fake nose. It's like a Superman level disguise. It really is. fooling anybody. But it fools enough. Apparently. Because he's let into this room he goes over and gives Saul mouth to mouth he gives Saul CPR he beats the hell out of his chest and finally pulls the glasses off like a doctor in a movie and says we lost him oh man I want to know how this works because Saul is laying there long enough. I've tried to hold my breath and play a dead guy in things. Uh huh. I'm not holding my breath that no, long. No, I mean, he's got minutes of this. Usually, you know, 20, 30 seconds, especially for a man in his 70s, is going to be as, about as much as you can get. And if he can do that, why can't Yin hold his breath for longer <laughs> in the thing? Yeah, we're, he's a lot younger. But I mean, I guess being calzoned probably makes it harder. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. All right, it's so in a we stress position. We've got a dead Saul and a fake doctor and all kinds of stuff going on, and. Linus takes his first step. So Linus has changed into a Mission Impossible outfit or is changing into a Mission Impossible outfit inside an outfit. They are all dressed exactly like Tom Cruise from Mission Impossible. (laughs) Is there a repelling outfit that people have to wear or is this just a straight up black and shiny? So all of the light and all of the air can whoosh past you as you are falling down. I was (laughs) repelled by it. So yeah, I think that's good. That's good. That's a good line. Hey. 
he is supposed to be doing this on his own. Linus is supposed to be doing a thing mm -hmm. and steps into the elevator that's going to take him down to the vault, which, by the way, he's gotten to, remember, because he went to go back to get his pager. Steps in, starts to change clothes, changes clothes, opens the hatch at the top of the elevator, looks up, and Danny's there and scares the crap out of him. Yes. This is where he kind of tells him it was all a test and that he passed. This seems like a bad time to test someone. You know, <laughs> like, maybe we could have finished the test before the one guy has 30 minutes left to breathe. What happens if he fails the test? Oh, sorry. Mr. Calzone's done. He's cooked. And they now have to play out the end of this together, which right. they're professionals, they're a team. But if somebody had done that to me, like trying to operate and do good things with them for the next few minutes, I don't know if I can do it. It would be oh, tough. It's just an excuse for Matt Damon to keep doing his like jump scare. Like it's like, which he gets to do multiple times in this movie because Bernie Mac scares him in the previous scene. And that's true. Yeah. It's a good combo. I mean, I think if you were to rank the combos in this movie, it would be Clooney and Pitt, number one. But I think Clooney and Damon is a good combination as well. So they they wanted to get them together to yeah. play off each other, I'm sure. And the Mormon twins rank... At the very bottom. <laughs> I mean, they're the least Mormon people I've ever seen in my life, and they don't look like twins, and I guess I have a limited Casey Affleck span. As any brain. healthy person would <laughs> at, in this day and age. But I could, have, I could see Scott Kahn all day, <laughs> yes. every day. Uh, back in the windowless room, our good friend Bruiser is putting on a solo performance of his own. <laughs> and throwing himself around this room, crashing into things, punching his own fist as if he's beating the crud out of Danny while the goons listen outside. And I love the implication that like for the half hour, so it takes to pull off this heist, <laughs> Bruiser is in there just improvising like a kicking fit. Yeah, <laughs> and never once do these other two guys like even poke their head in to be like, hey, Bruiser, do you need a break? Do you want some water? Oh, there's no one else in here? Is he dead? <laughs> <laughs> you are four times his size. Have you murdered him yet? <laughs> <laughs> he's just beating a corpse. <laughs> yeah. So he's going to do that. And while he's doing that, Rusty and uh, the hell's Clooney's character name? I Danny forget. Ocean. Danny Ocean. Thank it's you. It's the name of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Clooney's 11. Clooney's 11. <laughs> That's the name of it from here on out. <laughs> okay, Clooney's 11. Danny is up on the top of the thing, uh, elevator. Linus is up on the top of the elevator. They are now poised over the elevator shaft, which goes down forever. This is the same elevator shaft from Speed. It's the same elevator <laughs> shaft from every other. There's only one movie. Hollywood set with There's lasers just in it. And it's used yeah. for all of these yep. films. And it's this one. And they are going to do the Mission Impossible. They're going to hook these little things to their belts, these little magnetic repelling lines, yeah. and dangle until the exact right moment. Do those exist? Because if they exist, I want one. I don't. Oh, of course they exist. Well, my daughter's been doing rock climbing lately, and they have the auto belayers mm -hmm. where you can like just slowly ride down on them. They look really fun. They do. I really want to try it. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, I, I don't have this outfit, so I don't think I'm allowed to do it without the shiny <laughs> That's black true. vest. That's Donate true. Donate to support subgenre so we can purchase <laughs> outfits and belayers yes. for everyone here. Donate to the Patreon. Is there a Patreon? There's no Patreon. Don't donate to Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> to the Patreon at, at Nick Heim <laughs> on Venmo.com. Just PayPal me directly and I'll send you a picture of me belaying. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Belay that order. That's my new podcast. Um, Are we keeping any of that? No, none of it. Not any of it. No. It was so good though. Let's make notes. Okay, great. Do not keep this part. <laughs> Director's cut. Okay. They're dangling over this elevator shaft is the point. They're there and they're waiting. They're not dropping yet because they're waiting on Don Cheadle to do his job. Basher has got the... Uh, pinch. The pinch. He's got a pinch, ain't he? <laughs> and they need him to make this thing work. 
And he is going to do that, except for it takes this like kind of elongated minute where you see the whole thing like warm up. It makes that sound of something that's going to be very bad. Yeah, he kind of steps up, puts his hands over his crotch like he's in the, in the x-ray room. And he's doing that at the exact same time that they are dinging the fight in. And so here go the boxers. And it's what, Lennox Lewis and somebody else. Yeah, I think the other guy, I don't know if he's actually a boxer. I think he may have been a, like a strong man or something. He was an extra. They put him in there to get <laughs> beat the crap out of by Lennox Lewis. They start the fight. And within seconds of the fight starting, Basher cues the pinch, the pinch fires, and every light in Vegas goes out, including the lights in the auditorium where the fight is happening. Yes. Which the chaos is hard to imagine the level it would be in a giant auditorium full of people if the power went out. It's a pretty cool set piece, too. Like, what do you see? Like, they, you know, the fight is all there. There are thousands of extras it's there huge, watching yeah. it. And then. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. just the production value on this fight is, is amazing. It looks like the real deal. Absolutely. It is utter chaos everywhere because it starts with the pinch blows the van up. That's, the, <laughs> that's right. That's the thing that I, I keep looking at every time going, it's just an EMP. Like it bends the whole van in half, basically. Yeah, I don't know where what that even would be no. that causes that to happen. It blacks out Vegas, and you see all the casinos go down. It blacks out the fight only for just a few seconds. And then the lights come back on because you got the emergence. And it's when the lights come back on that all hell breaks loose. <laughs> In the fight and in the casino. All right. Now, this part, I was a little confused as to why the boxers were attacking each other. Like, this is their job. Why are they fighting each other just because the lights came back on? I wasn't sure well, what we are were you, supposed to take. They weren't able to punch while they were out. <laughs> they had to make up for lost time. That's true. Oh, That's I true. Mean, the, round, the, the round clock does not slow down simply because the lights are out. sitting here not punching not anything. Punching. <laughs> I have one job, and it is to punch that man. On the casino floor, you've got people losing their minds, like just grabbing chips and trying to run out the door with them and getting, you know, clocked in the head. Oh, I yeah. think there's a cocktail waitress that gets a, a clothesline or something. And I can attest to this. I went to a casino once with a group of friends and one of my friends had a box of chips and dropped them. And the human chaos that erupted in that moment is hard to quantify. I believe it. Oh, it's the worst of humankind <laughs> that you'll ever see. Just people diving on the floor. Is that considered theft? Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not your chips. That's correct. They're not my chips. But even if I've won them in the casino, mm. are, are the chips mine or are they the casino's chips still at that point? Yep. And if someone steals them and takes them and spends them elsewhere in the casino, the casino isn't losing the chip. That's true. Is that theft? Well, it would be theft from the person who had the chip, I imagine. But if it's a chip and not cash yet, you don't own the chips. You exchange the chips for the money that you right, then own. Right, but each own. chip is worth an, a certain monetary value. Mm -hmm. right? So if I have 10 chips and you just take one, then you just took $10 from me, right? Because I can no longer trade that in. I take 10 potential dollars from you. <laughs> this is a potential so you're potentiality versus actuality I could argument. go back out into the floor and lose it all still. Yeah. So it's really a Schrodinger's chip. Yeah. <laughs> it exists in a super state of money and not money. I'm never going to test this on a casino floor, but it is an interesting thought exercise. I think what we will do is we will all go to the casino and then Alan and I will steal all your chips <laughs> and then we'll tell you it wasn't and really money. And then I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> we'll say... You can't. It wasn't really money yet. Yeah. I will say victimless crime, victimless crime, <laughs> victimless. as my teeth are knocked out of my head <laughs> yeah, by I'm, Josh. I'm seeing the fault in my logic. <laughs> 
while the lights are off, this is the cue then for Danny and for Linus to do two things. And one of them is to break a bunch of glow sticks and drop them down the hole so that they've got light at the bottom, I guess. It seems like an unnecessarily complicated way to do it. It does. I guess so they don't just belay down and smack themselves into the floor, I'm assuming. I guess, or you could just have a flashlight. And then boom, they let the safety brake off these things and plummet however many stories they plummet down to the bottom. The problem is they're just not long enough. Not quite. And so they end up, uh, you know, a couple of feet off the ground, having their balls pulled up through the center <laughs> of their body. You don't, you don't attach the belayer directly to your testicles, right? <laughs> not directly. <laughs> you don't? I need to change my screen. I always thought rock climbing was so uncomfortable. <laughs> like, well, how does anyone enjoy this? <laughs> And so they have to cut themselves loose. They cut themselves loose just in time, hit the floor, and all the lasers come back on. Which, by the way, movie lasers, right? This is entrapment lasers where you can see them all the way down, which makes a lot of sense for a security system. (laughs) Right, exactly. You want to make sure everyone can see all of your security measures. So they're at the bottom. They've made it. The power comes back on just after they've hit the bottom. I always wondered about the belay lines, too. Like, when the power comes back on... Yeah, it seems like they should trigger the lasers. You'd think. Maybe they just right back up in time. Maybe. I don't know. I always, I always thought they were like in the middle and the lasers all go around them. They precisely placed the belay thing. See, we to... should have rewatched this scene before we, we started this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone out there knows the answer, please PayPal Nick Time <laughs> $10 and I will talk about it on the next episode. There's not going to be a next episode. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting canceled. When there is chaos in a casino, the boss of the casino, in this case, Terry Benedict, needs to go deal with that. And so he immediately gets up from the chaos that's happening in the fight, grabs Tess, and starts to head back towards the casino proper, which is where all the money is. As he is doing that, in the vault, Yen is now running out of air, and it's now time for him to do his Yen thing, which is to open the door and get out. Yeah, I mean, and we we assume he's going to be stuck in there because of the briefcase, but instead it's a different little uh, wrinkle in the plan, which is that the case starts falling off, and if it hits the floor, it's going to set off the alarms, right? So then becomes a new little mini adventure where he has to stop this case from falling by grabbing the chain and stuff. It's pretty cool. And again, the security system on the floor is like Saturday Night Fever disco lights that you can see, (laughs) which I don't get. Well, I mean, that's because you just don't have the soul of disco in you. He captures the, what is it? He grabs the handcuffs or something that are attached to the case. Yeah, the handcuff on the chain. Grabs that, saves it right at the last second. Everybody breathes a deep breath of uh, relief. Outside the vault, then, you've got Danny and Linus, who between them and the vault door are a couple of guards who I guess just hang out down here. Why do you need the guards if you have the lasers and the every other thing? Why do you need two dudes? Redundancy. Yeah, just quadruple redundancy. A pinch cannot knock out a guy with an Uzi, Josh. I've tried it in modern Unless they were sitting in that van and then, yeah. (laughs) That's true. Or attach some belay lines to their balls and send them flying up through the... <laughs> We've learned all kinds of painful ways really? to dispatch these two guards, which thankfully it's not very painful for them. They just get knocked out with the gas. Yeah, yeah what, hockey pucks full of gas? Is that what those are? I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that can't be good for their brains, whatever it is. But <laughs> yeah, math is going to be a problem. <laughs> They're not that. name actors. It's fine. <laughs> they tie up whoever these dudes are. And uh, that gives them access. You know, they knock them out with the knockout gas. They tie them up and 
that gives our two guys access to the outside of the vault door. And inside, Yin prepares to do this jump that we've seen him do before in practice, the one with the backflip. They do a very good job in this of setting everything up in advance so that when it comes time to execute, you are following along with the plan so that as soon as it goes wrong, you are as panicked as they are, which is great. You know, it's kind of the Titanic formula. You know, Titanic, I think, does it as well as any movie where they set up what the plot is going to be at the beginning so that while it's happening, you have no questions and you're just invested in the drama of it. And they, they do it here very well, too. That's a, good, that's a good way to describe it, yeah. And Yen does his backflip. He does. Which we saw him do before, and it was great, and everybody clapped. Mm-hmm. And this time, he just puts a little too much oomph into it mm-hmm. and flies almost off the backside of whatever cabinet it is he's landing on. Yeah, which is a good detail, I think, because a lot of times when you get into a real like sports situation or whatever, yeah. You end up having more adrenaline and you overshoot or, you know, whatever. And he he does the same kind of thing. Yeah, this is not the time, Yen. Come on, Yen. You've been calzoned for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, you got to stretch, Now man. it's time to pizzone. <laughs> he, oh, he is, uh, he, he manages to get, God, we have a pizzone reference? <laughs> he, okay. <sighs> he gets to whatever top of the thing he's supposed to get to by doing his flip. He manages to clamber his way over and stay off the floor. The floor is lava. And gets over to his side of the vault door where he has to put a charge receiver or something. Like yeah, yeah he, he needs to be the guy planting the bombs. And that has to be answered on the other side of the door by Danny and Linus who have their bit and they put it on the outside of the vault door on their side as well. And then what's going to happen is they're going to step back and pull a trigger and boom. And so we've we've set up this idea earlier where he hurt his hand when they were stealing the pinch. Yen did. And it seemed like it was just to make Yen's job harder, you know? Yes. But then it actually comes back to be a plot point here when his bandages get stuck on the door and he can't move anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sticks it to his bandages mm-hmm. and... The bandages are so good that he can't rip them away out of whatever this is and is stuck to the door. You know, he was the ticking clock before with the 30 minutes of air. Now he's the ticking clock on we're going to blow this vault in like three, two, one or yeah, whatever. And he's about to be multiple pieces of calzone all over the, the vault. <laughs> it will become Ocean's 10 very quickly. Oh, yes. Well, or, or Ocean's 23, you know, <laughs> <laughs> depending on how many pieces. I believe you mean Clooney's 23. So Danny and Linus, they've got a little detonator uh, trigger thing on the outside. They step back, get into position and three, two, one, pull the trigger. And nothing happens. Yeah, I mean, it's a great gag. It works well. It's funny and it's, you know, has the tone of the film, but it also gets them out of the jam. And it's a fun way to do it. It buys enough time for Yen to pull himself free, which I don't understand if he could pull himself free now, why he couldn't pull himself free earlier. He was having oxygen deprivation. Right. And the other gag to this is that Linus has brought spare batteries. Yes. That's a guy you want on your team, someone who has thought that far ahead. Mm-hmm. And they load the new batteries in and accidentally, immediately, Clooney pulls the trigger on this thing and boom, blows all the pins out of the safe door. And we're not quite sure if Yen made it all the way to safety. Right. And luckily he did. He's fine. And he will live to Calzone another day. And curses them out when they get inside. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to which Danny can just be like, yeah, sorry well, about that know, one. There were lasers. In the suite. Mm -hmm. Then we have Rusty and Livingston watching on the monitors. This seems to be their job now. They're watching everything go down, and that includes Danny Linus and Yen now loading up money from the vault. The robbery is in full swing. Mm -hmm. Here we go. 
this is Q time. So Livingston lets Rusty know. I guess Rusty isn't up there with him. Rusty's down on the floor because he's been the doctor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Rusty's made a costume change and now put on some sort of Hawaiian shirt or something. Like that's yeah. the costume. Great. So Livingston makes a call to him, says, hey, it's your turn. Rusty makes a phone call. Yeah. And it seems like this is the boldest move you could ever make. Like yeah. it seems, again, like a poor decision because they just call him to gloat. But little, I mean, we find out it's all part of the plan. But at the beginning, you're like, wow, is this really the idea that you're you're almost home free and you're going to let him know that you're in the middle of robbing his shit? And the way they do it is the phone call that uh, Rusty makes rings a phone that's in Tess's pocket. So remember, Benedict and Tess are walking away from the fight. They're in whatever interior corridor that is. Right. Her pocket starts to ring. He tells her, are well, you going to answer that? She says, I don't own a cell phone. Which is quite a line to have for <laughs> an adult human now. Yes. I want that to be my ringtone. <laughs> Julia Roberts saying, Julia Roberts saying, I don't own a cell phone. <laughs> right. She says, I don't own a phone. This of course, turns the radar on full blast for Benedict. Tess answers it. He tells her to answer it, and mm -hmm. she talks to Rusty. He basically asks, who the hell is this? And Rusty says, it's the man who's robbing you, mm, <laughs> which so is good. great. And then he's got to go check on the video feed, which looks normal at first. You know, he looks at it, and it just seems like, you know, he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And then they switch the feed and shows him, oh, wait, this vault is in pieces, and they're loading the money out right now. And he's like, I saw this in speed. <laughs> Did speed come out before the speed came out yeah, before this? Right? Before, oh, yeah, that's before, yeah. man. Yeah. Oh no. So I've seen this before. Yeah. I feel like this like replacing the security footage gag has happened in multiple films and it's very similar each time. He's watching it on the monitor. It looks normal. All of a sudden it doesn't look normal and he can see that he's being robbed for everything that he has. And Rusty's like, see, told you. And Rusty tells him he's gonna take half the money out with him and the other half is wired to explode. So he can either lose half of his money and let him walk out free and clear or try and take him out and lose all of it. And you can lose half of it privately right. or lose all of it publicly. Right. I think is the, the phrase too. This kind of triggers something with Julia Roberts and she has a flashback to when Danny had gone, remember, to the restaurant mm. to tell her goodbye. Mm -hmm and leans in to give her the kiss and at that moment apparently slips this phone into her pocket. Yeah, I mean, and if this is going on, you're Julia Roberts, and this is going on and you have not figured out that your ex-husband super thief is somehow involved, I think that's not a good sign. Benedict says, how are you planning on getting all, you know, even if you've got my money, how are you planning on, you know, getting it out of my casino? And Rusty tells him, I'm not, you are. <laughs> like, you're, you're going to take it out for mm -hmm. me. And this is the part of the heist that we have not learned about in advance, right? So now we're entering into new territory right. where we don't know what they're going to do. And so we're kind of just interested to hear how they're going to get this money out of here at all. Which is good because the plan was so meticulously laid out that I think it, there would be, like Soderbergh and the company wisely figured out, like, okay, there's going to be a place where, like, we have to go off radar. Like, they have to not know, like, you know, what the plan even was so they can't even know if it's going wrong or not. And I think, you know, by setting up the first half that way, it allows you to kind of follow all the twists and turns. But then by not knowing Knowing the ending, you can be surprised by all of the steps as well. And it's during this conversation with Benedict that 
Tess, who Benedict has excused, you don't need to be here for this, has walked out that one door and run into Rusty, who, for whatever reason, is hanging out by that one door (laughs) and sees him on the phone saying these things that she knows that he's saying to Benedict, which I figured she would have figured out earlier when she heard his voice on the phone when she answered it. Yeah, but she should know this guy pretty well if she was married to George Clooney. And it could be as simple as like, you know, that's suspecting that was part of the reason why she wasn't that surprised, like when she discovers, yeah, Rusty doing this. She knows what he's doing. Rusty, when he sees Tess, or when Tess sees Rusty or they see each other, finishes his sentence to Benedict Mm -hmm. and covers the phone for a second. He's like, hey, Tess. (laughs) (laughs) He should use the mute button. Benedict is cooperating, I guess, with all the demands that are being placed on him. Right. I mean, it seems like he's kind of figuring he'll go along with it because he'll get his chance later to grab them, right? Yeah. And what he's doing behind the scenes while he's sort of placating Rusty is he's telling his casino manager to call 911 and get SWAT here. Right. Which the casino manager does. Tess, now that Rusty is off the phone, Tess is asking him, like, where's Danny? And I know Danny's here. Where where the hell is Danny? Mm-hmm. And Rusty says, Danny wants you to go upstairs and watch TV. <laughs> Which we will figure out what that means here in a little while. Yeah. But there is obviously a plan. Yes. The plan is more intricate than we thought. Benedict tells Rusty to kind of cap this call off. I have done everything you want me to, right? I've complied with all of your demands. I've done everything that that you have asked me to do, including Rusty has sort of run him through the end process. Remember, he said, you're going to take him out the door and we're not going to take him out the door. Rusty tells him that Danny and Linus and Yen are going to be putting these six bags of cash outside the vault. They're going to have big X on them and they're going to come up the elevator to the casino cages. And then at the casino cages, your guards are going to carry it out of the casino and they're going to do it in 20 seconds or less or else you know, the next pizza is free. (laughs) And there is a van that pulls up outside. They put the bags in the back of the van. Do not approach the front of the van, it said. If you approach the front of the van, this thing is over. So they put all the money into the back of the van. They close the doors and this van zips off Mm -hmm. and drives away and is immediately pursued then by all of Benedict's guys. Right. I mean, and it seems like, okay, they got away, but there's no way they're going to escape this tale. Right. The van leaves immediately after it's gone, SWAT arrives in their big sort of bread truck uh, SWAT thing. And Benedict says, you know, we come back to this thing about I've complied with everything you wanted me to, right? I've done it. You, you happy now? You've taken the money and it's out of my casino? Okay, great. Now I have one request of my own. <laughs> it's a phenomenal line for Andy Garcia, which is just run and hide. No, it's good. He, he does menacing very well in the scene. And you really believe he's going to chase them for the rest of their natural lives. And I think it's the, if you get caught by in a Cadillac in Southern California, I'm going to be really, really disappointed, <laughs> which I think is an actual reference to a heist that happened to Steve Wynn. Oh, oh really? Where the guys that stole from him were picked up not that long later trying to buy a car and, you know, wherever. It's kind of like, oh man, it took the fun out of trying to find you guys. <laughs> So that's his request is run and hide. And then the phone dies. Yeah, he just leaves it in the casino floor. With fingerprints on it. Oh, yeah. But I guess it doesn't matter because they're going to know who did it. Yeah, I mean, these guys are going to disappear. They'll have enough money to actually disappear. Uh, Rusty's gone. We get a shot of the suite. The suite, nobody's left in the suite. Yeah. All their equipment's still there, but everybody's gone. It seems like it's over. It does. But we still don't know how they're going to escape. The money is on the move. Mm -hmm. SWAT is here. Rusty is somewhere. Danny and Yin and Linus are all down in the vault. So everybody's kind of in all their different places. We have no idea how this is going to go down, but it is going to have to happen soon. And we'll talk more about that when we come back.
It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts, yes, I said thefts, of the Mona Lisa, how the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection, and the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. This is Subgenre. You are listening to myself and Nick Heim and Alan Mall, and we're talking about Oceans 11 from 2001, and we're eating cookies. How are we doing, guys? Cookie-tastic. Perfect. Perfect. Tip Josh top. is a good host when, when hosting a podcast. He also has a good uh, spread here, so if you ever get a chance to guest host on Subgenre, <laughs> I recommend If you ever break it to Josh's <laughs> house. If you need a free meal, yeah. agree yeah. to guest host on yeah. Subgenre. Oh, yeah. This is how I'm going to get guests from here on out on the podcast, and I'm, I'm just going to start offering free cookies. They're good cookies. They're vegan. Are they really? Yeah, they really are. Vegan chocolate chip cookies. Did you know such a thing existed? I did, but they usually don't taste this good, so I give them thumbs up. Well, that's a good time to geek out. <laughs> awesome. Today's geek out is going to take these top level actors that we have in this film. And by that, I mean George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, and Matt Damon. Even though he's co-star in this, he becomes bigger than life a couple of years later. And Scott Kahn. And Scott Kahn. <laughs> And we are going to have a bit of a lively debate, hopefully, about these performers. Make an argument for which one of these performers, who arguably have wonderful careers, all of them, which one of these performers has had the best career and why? So who wants to start out on this? Who is a, a Clooney or a Pitt or a Roberts or a Damon at this table? Before I started looking through the filmographies of all these people, I probably would have said George Clooney. Yeah. Like that, oh. that's, that's the one that like- Not who I would have picked. He's okay. like, he's the most kind of prototypical movie star of the group. Yes. But as I went through the list, I think I'm going to go with Brad Pitt out of these, be, just based on the number of films in the filmography that I think are all timers. All right. So talk to like, me. That's to me, to me how I would pick who it is. Here, let me start with, with, with the others and, and the ones they, they did that I think are some of the top films. So Clooney's films that I think fall into that category, other than Batman and Robin, obviously. Other. Bat uh, nipples. <laughs> the bat, <laughs> bat nipples is also Alan's Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> out of sight. Yeah. The, the Thin Red Line. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, of course. Uh, Michael Clayton. Uh-huh. And I think that's it. Those are the ones out of his list that I think are the top of the line. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other good ones in there, but those are the ones I think are all timers. No up in the air? No, no up in the air. No good okay. night and good luck? Come on. No good. I mean, those are all fine movies. Like, okay. I enjoyed them. Okay. And I mean, he was on ER. That's fine, too. <laughs> he was also on another show called ER that is unrelated to the ER hospital show. Really? Yes. He had much bigger hair in the 80s. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, there was ER, and then there was E slash R, the earlier show that he was on. Well, the slash makes all the difference. It really does. <laughs> So, and then I think Julia Roberts also has a strong claim to being, you know, she's just culturally a force and has been for a long time. I think her best ones are 
Pretty Woman, The Pelican Brief, Notting Hill, Aaron Brockovich, and you could probably maybe closer. Mm-hmm. It's a good good film. I think probably not her one guest spot on Friends, but maybe. Brad Pitt also on Friends. Yes. Everybody's on Friends. Including Elliot Gould. <laughs> <laughs> and then Matt Damon. The circle of life. <laughs> Uh, Matt Damon, I think you could make an ar- argument that uh, Goodwill Hunting, obviously, yeah, a classic. Dogma, I love. I oh, think it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interstellar is good, and he's very good and kind of playing against type in it. But those are probably about it. He was also a guest star as an aardvark on the show Arthur, the children's show Arthur. Well, amazed that none of the Bourne movies made made their. Uh, I wouldn't put them on the list because I don't think they're that good. But I th- great. <laughs> I think okay. I think they're competently made, and they kind of change the way we do action movies in some good and some bad ways but they're not some of my favorites okay i mean the great wall you're leaving the great wall i'm out leaving the great wall out yeah <laughs> right. when you look up whitewashing in the dictionary <laughs> i think the great wall is the and movie i'm leaving out the- we bought a zoo also yeah uh and the fact that he was one of the fans in the stands in field of dreams at fenway park very uh, cool in the scene where kevin costner goes to the thing that is not making the list either uh but i think i'm gonna pick brad pitt because he's got thelma and louise he's got true romance he's got seven He's got 12 Monkeys. He's got Fight Club. He's got The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, all of which are top films. Well, the best thing is in that list, you pretty much stopped in about 20 years ago. And and like there were still all of the movies that he made after 2002. Only two were on that list you just gave. It's true. I mean, I think Brad Pitt is probably the best actor in terms of like being able to disappear into a role. Like he's a character actor who looks like the world's most handsome man. And that's why I like, uh, Brad Pitt was my pick as well, because it would have been very easy for him to settle in and decide I'm just going to rely on the fact that I'm a really pretty guy and not push himself that hard but he clearly cares about the craft of acting enough that he wanted to do things that were different absolutely I mean and you can see that starting in 12 monkeys where I mean that's that's an amazing character and you know uses none of his natural charm or good looks and just is all about like just taking the performance all the way Now, was your criteria, if I heard right, your criteria was that the movies that they were in were great. That would be my, like, how I picked between them. Because they're all, obviously, movie stars of the top level. You know, they're all A-listers. So how do you choose between them? For me, it was, okay, let's look at the filmography. Which one of these films are, I think, great films? And then who has the highest score? Do their performances, does Pitt's performances in those movies that you were naming, are all of his performances in each of these really good movies top tier, or is it the movie itself? Uh, I think most of them are also top tier. I think like he doesn't have a big part in True Romance. Yeah. You know, it's a pretty small part there. But I think Twelve Monkeys is great. He's very good in Thelma and Louise, and uh, a Fight Club. He makes the movie. Yes, Jesse James. He makes the movie. I mean, Inglorious Bastards is more of a supporting role. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, again, like that's maybe more of a Leonardo DiCaprio movie, but he's great in all of them. Like he's never the weak spot. Let's not forget California with a K. California. Him and and, uh, David Duchovny. Come on. I will forget that. (laughs) Playing a character named Early Grace. (laughs) And I will forget Cool World as well. (laughs) Yeah, please forget Cool World. (laughs) 
Okay, so Brad Pitt. That's my pick. And Alan, you said Brad Pitt? That was also who I would have voted for for the sheer volume of movies. Because like, we also didn't mention his role in Burn After Reading, which is one of my favorite personal Brad Pitt performances. Babel was so, an excellent one where he leaned into Ooh, like, yeah. looking older and things yeah. like that. So, you know, just so we stop being super Brad Pitt fanboys. I'm also like, I like Matt Damon a lot. And like, I would stick up for the Bourne movies a bit more than Nick did, just because I think like, again, maybe I'm just, I'm mixed in with it. It got me to rethink like how action and espionage movies could be less like cerebral and goofy and that some of the like James Bond and more just like violent, gritty and like unexpectedly, you know, surprising. So I know it changed the industry a lot in terms of action movies. Like I think every movie was trying to copy the kinetic feel of that movie for years afterwards. And we're just starting now to get out of the shaky cam fights that that inspired, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a big franchise and I, I understand why it would feature largely yeah, I'm also got a soft spot for Damon because he's more like you mentioned dogma, but he's one of those like pretty boy actors who's also willing to like make fun of himself enough. Like Absolutely, I think yeah. he very nearly voiced himself in Team America World Police, but then when the <laughs> the puppet they got for him was so deflected looking that like they decided just to like have him only be able to say Matt Damon like over and over. It again. is like it is hard. All we're talking about Matt Damon not to say that. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the fact that like you know he's most the thing I think of him lately was just doing crypto ads during for like for the Super Bowl and like you know Matt what yeah. have you done man I'm sure Bitcoin paid you in cash when they when they oh, did I'm that sure, yeah. you did not he's very funny and I think he and John Hamm like have a similar ability to play comedic roles against type yes and both of which were on 30 Rock weirdly Carol Burnett was his name on the pilot Carol Burnett yeah I am inclined to say the same as you, which Mm. is Brad Pitt. And here's why. Because I think overall, the performances that Pitt gives in the movies that he's in regardless of whether that movie is a really good movie or not, tend to be the most solid mm-hmm. to me. Agreed. They're the ones that it feels like, okay, the acting degree paid off. That's <laughs> true. What gives me pause is, but not it doesn't give me pause on him, but just another candidate that rises up is I'm very tempted to say Julia Roberts. Mm, she's be- so good. She's I mean. so good. And the reason is because I have seen Brad Pitt movies where Brad Pitt was fine. Brad Pitt was good. I didn't really like Brad Pitt. You know, the movie was fine. And I, but Brad Pitt was... Like he was so so. I don't know that I've ever seen a Julia Roberts movie where I went, ah, she was fine. No, I mean, she's. I think there's two types of movie stars. There are movie stars who are, I don't want to say playing themselves because they're not, but they're they're playing this particular thing. And that's why you go to the movie. And it's, yeah. when you go to a George Clooney movie, you're looking for George Clooney to be George Clooney. And he might go a little left or a little right, but he's going to be in the ballpark of what you're looking for. Gary Busey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Busey really is at the top of any acting list. I know what I want when I see Gary Busey in a movie. Scott Kahn is number two. But and then there's uh, actors who disappear more. Gary Oldman and Brad Pitt, some of those guys. I mean, Julia Roberts and George Clooney both carry films with what seems like no effort. And it's a skill that's very, very hard to do. And when you see them do it, it seems so easy that it almost doesn't seem worth commenting on because they it's so invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think she does that in nearly everything that she's in. It's like, it's like you said, she's more akin to Clooney than Pitt is akin to Clooney, I think. Which, that goes a long way in my book in the, I like her in everything I see her in. Yeah. And I feel that way about Clooney, but I also feel like it's easier for Clooney. I don't know why <laughs> I feel that, but it, Clooney to me, his resume in terms of the movies that he is in 
is probably, in my mind, the best resume mm. of movies that he's been in with Pitt being a close second. What's your favorite Clooney movie? Ah, it's a good question. I'm tempted to say Ocean's Eleven just because I like everybody that's around him. But I think probably it's Oh Brother. I mean, yeah. if, we're, if we're getting right to, down that, to it. I feel like that's the right choice. It's hard to beat that movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, there's, he's got he's got some other decent ones that are out there that he's in, like Syriana, which I really like a lot. Good German. I Syriana's like. good, yeah. I did not like Solaris. I did not like the remake of Solaris. But <sighs> I did not. I've never seen the original of Solaris beforehand so I liked it okay and then I saw the original and I'm like oh this is way better and Dust Till Dawn of course you know from back in the day yeah yeah I mean it's fine out of sight you know he's in a lot of good movies and I think he does great in a lot of good movies I think that I'm less excited to see him than I typically am Julia Roberts in a Mm. movie just in terms of she makes me happy but I think that her acting ability put up against Brad Pitt Brad Pitt is running circles around everybody in terms of acting ability And then Matt Damon sort of sits off to the side for me in that I love the Bourne movies, but that's kind of all I like Matt Damon in. Mm. Put Matt Damon as Jason Bourne, I'm all in for it. Put Matt Damon in anything else, and I got to think about it for a minute. I don't feel like Matt Damon is ever going to draw me to see a movie. That's a good point. But if he's in it, I will enjoy him in it. Yeah. But like... I'm not going to be like, oh, I got to see Matt Damon. Whereas I might say that about Scott Kahn. <laughs> <laughs> Headliner, Scott Kahn. Hey, Scott, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> we love you, Scott. There are cookies here. Come, come, come have a vegan cookie. It's surprisingly not that vegan. <laughs> Okay, so I think maybe that's a long way of saying I kind of agree with you. I think Brad Pitt is probably at the top of the list, but I think that uh, Julia Roberts for me runs a really, really, really close second for different reasons. I mean, you couldn't really go wrong with any of them. They're all great. And, you know, I think they're all defensible choices, but I'm going to stick with Brad Pitt. Okay. Well, there we go. All right. Well, then it's a Brad Pittathon, and we all love Brad Pitt. We solved it. Because he's dreamy. He's very dreamy. Let's get back to talking about this film. When we left off, all hell had broken loose inside the casino. The lights had gone off. Everybody was stealing stuff. Money had been stolen from the vault and it had been taken to a truck which had driven away with it. And Terry Benedict had told Rusty, run and hide. I want to try to find you. Don't get caught so easy because my guys are coming after you and they're coming after you hard. Yeah. And once this end happens, it all comes so fast. It's like quick, 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 quick. In runtime, we're very close to the end of the movie, but there's a lot of things left to happen Mm -hmm. because it happens so fast. Yeah. And we'll talk about them in this last three hours of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) The money has taken off. Benedict's goons are in hot pursuit and they have pursued this van that has driven into the gates of McCarran Airport down at the end of the strip. They have pursued it and pulled up right behind it. Them and about three or four other cars, all of which have guys with guns in them. And so it looks like maybe whoever's driving that van is going to be cornered at the airport before they can ever get out and get on a plane. Back at the casino, while this is happening simultaneously, the SWAT team has arrived and they're doing what Matt Damon and George Clooney did a little while ago, which is they are letting themselves down that elevator shaft so they can go down and take care of the guys that are down there in the vault. Benedict is watching on his monitors as they make entry into the vault and you hear them, hey, you know, cut the power. Here we go. Click. There's somebody in here. There's gunfire. There's explosions. It sounds like SWAT is taking down George Clooney and Matt Damon. Oh, and then there's an explosion. That's the big part. And when the lights come back on, all that Benedict can see is that the guys have made good on their threat and they have blown up his vault and all the money in it. Yes. Thanks for that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. You know what? Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) It reaches a crescendo of action and like, you know, it's like 
Now that we are off the outline of the plan, we don't know how Danny Ocean and his merry band are going to get out of this. It is literally a little suspenseful. Like the music oh, is yeah. upbeat and playing, so you think everything's probably going to be okay, but at the same time, in the back of your head, you're like, how are they going to get out of this? No, I like, mean, that's really what this movie does so well, is it puts you into a corner where you're like, there's literally no way they can escape this. And then when they do, it's so satisfying. And Benedict heads down physically then to his own vault. He goes down the elevator and goes in to see... The SWAT team's down there and there's stuff everywhere and it, it's been blown to shit. And so he knows that he's, you know, had all of his money blown up and lost it. He's got nothing left to lose, really. Makes a call to his guys and says, take the van. At the airport, you know, they're all behind it. They've been told not to approach the driver's door. So they start by shooting out the tires. But I mean, then we get the reveal of what was really set up in the first scene with the twins with the remote control yeah. mini car. And it finally pays off here. Chekhov's mini car. It's not called a mini car. What's it called? RC car. RC car, yes. <laughs> I like the idea of Chekhov's RC car. Chekhov's, yeah. Chekhov's RC car. Yeah, 19th century car. Russian author. <laughs> like... I was thinking of like the Enterprise Helmsman. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So stupid. <laughs> 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 why why did i say that? <laughs> back to mini cars it's, it's not called a mini car rc car <laughs> so we, the the rc car finally pays off and we see that the van is being driven by remote control they figure out that the van is being driven by robotic control right, right. there's a camera in there yeah which really funny the camera sort of turns <laughs> to look at the it's very uh short circuit johnny five yes, yes. and and it's being johnny controlled five. just down the runway by casey affleck who's yep. sitting in the car with ruben and it's you know casey affleck's being a dick and he's you know making the van go forward a little bit and right. stop and go forward a little bit and stop and finally ruben's just like just do it and so as the guys with guns approach the back of this van to take the money out, he blows up the van. Yeah. And that's when we find out there was no money in the van. It's all full of these flyers that we saw earlier. Just those flyers. If you've ever been to Las Vegas, you were handed a thousand flyers anytime you walk down the street. Escort flyers. Yes. Flyers for escorts, for strip clubs, for casinos, for all of it. There's no cash in the van. It's full of escort flyers, which are now burning and flying through the air. They radio this back to Benedict. Benedict right. kind of- he, he now can't figure out where the hell's my money then. So he's like, okay, my money's not in the van. Escort flyers. He's standing in the middle of this blown up vault, looks around and finally, I guess, sees it for what it is. All the crap that's blown up everywhere is the same thing. Escort flyers. Yeah, and so he looks down at the floor, sees the logo on the floor, and realizes that there may be some way to figure this out. And he heads back up to the security tape area. He calls up to his guy and says, find the tape from the robbery. And so the guy's like, he pulls it back up, is playing it. Yeah, okay, what's the big deal? And Benedict points to the ground, looks at the ground, and there is a Bellagio logo that has been inlaid on this floor. And it is a logo that they just put in, which is not present in the video of the heist, which clues him in that that is not a video of his vault. Yeah, so his vault had not actually been blown up the way he thought. That set that we've been going on and on about for both of these episodes <laughs> that they spent all this freaking money to build a replica of the vault in this airplane hangar. We finally figure out why they did that. And it's because that is where the heist was staged, not yeah. in the real vault. Yes. And so they had the footage from the fake vault going into the feed so that they could manipulate him the way they wanted to. The SWAT team is still there with him down in the vault. Yeah. And so Benedict, you know, is just beside himself that his money is now gone and he, he got fooled. And so he wants to be alone dismisses the SWAT team. So the leader of the SWAT, and all the SWAT team are wearing masks and everything. The leader of the SWAT team's like, are you sure, man? I get like, we need to stay here and clean up. And he's like, no, get out of my vault. And okay, we're gone. SWAT team grabs their gear bags and leaves. 
Wasn't that before he figured out the logo thing? I don't know. I thought it was. Somewhere in there. The guys have taken the money. They're on their way out. And that's when we get the flip up of the visor and we see that the SWAT team, there's Brad Pitt. He was on the team. There was no SWAT team. They intercepted the call. The police never showed up. This is all a fake SWAT team. Mm -hmm. And they're walking out with the real money. Yes. Which is in these bags that look like gear bags for the SWAT team. They've been down there the whole time loading up money into these bags <laughs> and are carrying them out looking like they're leaving with their guns. Yeah, it's a fantastic ending. I mean, it's the moment when all the pieces kind of click into place and you're like, oh, he meant to like taunt him. He meant to do all these things. He was never being ruled by his emotions. It was all part of the plan, which mm -hmm. is a great feeling to have at the end of a heist movie. You get this moment of seeing, okay, well, the leader of the SWAT team is Brad Pitt. The visor comes yes, up, right. he wipes his face, you see it's Brad Pitt, but you don't really know who the rest of the SWAT team is it's until a moment later when there's this, cheers, a moment later when there's this flashback to how the SWAT team got down there, and you see that the entire SWAT team is composed of the rest of the team, including... Ancient Saul, <laughs> struggling <laughs> to hold Saul. on to the line as it goes down. Yeah, so they all had to do this stupid rappelling thing down to the bottom and then dress up like SWAT people. How many Tom Cruise outfits did they have to buy for this? And in what size? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I hear they stretch really, really well. Oh, so it's, see, it's, that's it's, probably why they use them. Yeah. And then you get the, the reenactment. So we get to see, we, you know, we back up in time and we get to see this sort of play that they do. They're not on camera. You know, they're, they're up in the vault, Benedict is watching what he thinks is the robbery happening on the tape. But they're down there going, hey, there's somebody here. Get it. You know, it's all the things we heard before, but it's just being played out by Brad Pitt and the rest of the team. And we kind of see that Danny and Linus are just chilling and, yeah. you know, helping out with this thing. It's a great reveal. And it's very much in keeping with the tone of the film. Like, it's just fun. The whole thing is fun, and you know, you're just getting super stressed, and now the fun is back. And it caps off with a flashback to, well, maybe not a flashback, but it caps off with completing a mystery that we got started for us before, which is as the fake SWAT team carries these bags of cash that look like not bags of cash out and get into their SWAT van and close the door, we see from the perspective of the driver's seat of this van and there is a pine tree air freshener hanging from the rear view mirror. So this was a van that they put together. Yeah, so just in case you didn't get it when you saw Brad Pitt, now yes. you'll get it. Now you get when it. You get air it the air freshener. Yeah. I was suspicious at first. Now that I saw the air, air freshener, <laughs> yeah. I know I can trust these guys. There's only one of those in the world. <laughs> and off goes the truck. The truck full of money that everybody thinks is the SWAT team heading away, it drives away into the far distance and the money is gone. Okay. His money is gone. Yeah. He's figured out that he's been had. He's got to suspect Danny. So Benedict makes his way back into that corridor, that same corridor we're in every damn time, and back to the room where Danny is supposed to be. And I think he's assuming that Danny will not be there. And he right. flings open the door, and Danny's there with Bruiser, who's beating the crap out Getting of him. Getting beaten to a pulp, yeah. You know, he looks the worst for wear. And Benedict calmly begins to question Danny and wants to know if he had a hand in it. Doesn't mention what it is, but keeps asking him, did you have a hand in it? And Danny just plays dumb and says he has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah, I don't know what it is. What is, what is it? Benedict, you know, calls for Bruiser to back off, let him go. If he doesn't know anything, that's fine. At that exact same time, Livingston calls Tess, who, remember, has been told to go upstairs to watch TV. Right. And isn't at this point, like, hasn't bothered to turn the TV on yet. So if they, again, this is another moment of if, <laughs> if things had gone even just slightly differently. If she's not watching the TV, then that whole beat at the end never happens. Or, or if she'd gone upstairs and, like, turned on Friends. Right. You know? <laughs> hey, that's me. <laughs> Caroline on, in the City or whatever. Caroline in the City. <laughs> me and Rusty are on Friends. 
But he, she gets the call. Hey, you need to turn on the television. Turn it on to channel 88. And when she turns on the channel, she is connected directly to the surveillance camera feed of the corridor where Danny is being led out by Benedict to take him away. And this is where, you know, Danny sets it up very perfectly, where he asks if Benedict would give up Tess yeah. to get back the money. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, hell, but- hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Benedict actually gives Danny one more chance because he's sure Danny has something to do with this. Yeah, exactly. Like ben- Benedict tells Danny, like, look, I'm going to give you one last chance to tell me where the money is. And Danny says, if I tell you, will you give up? up Tess and there is no pause whatsoever. And Benedict's like, yeah, totally. I totally give yeah, up Tess. Yeah, I, I would say yes. <laughs> I don't care about her. And it's so, not like she's watching me on closed circuit TV. And so it looks like, okay, Danny is going to give up the game for Tess, but instead he plays into Benedict's assumptions about Danny, which is that Danny is a loser, a low life and says, okay, I know this guy. If anything happens, this guy met him in prison. This guy knows everything. And you can just see Benedict's face drop. And he's like, you know a guy. (laughs) It's that moment of playing dumb that gets Danny thrown off the property. Yeah. And also, I think, gets him out of suspicion. You know, like he's like, oh, well, this guy's just an idiot. He doesn't know anything. But it also accomplishes having that moment for Tess to see that she is not as wanted as she thinks she is. Obviously, it was part of his plan all along and and works out. So Tess departs her room. Danny is off the property and Benedict is heading back to the room, I think, to go meet up with Yeah, does he talk about parole violation first? Oh, yeah, that's true. He he says, uh, this guy, pointing to Danny, this guy is probably in violation of his parole. Uh, Please let his parole officer know that. And heads back to his room. And we get a meet cute. Is that what you call <laughs> this? The yes. opposite of a meet. The end, end <laughs> meet, cute? Meet hate. It's meet a meet hate. hate. It's yeah. a meet hate. It's a hate cute. Hate cute. At the elevator. Yeah. I mean, and this is the callback to what we, what Benedict said before, where he said, you know, there's always someone watching in the hotel. And, you know, she kind of lets on that she saw the whole thing and says, you know, you should know there's always someone watching. It's a good ending. He gets it at that moment, what has happened. Like all the pieces suddenly crystallize for him and he realizes that, you know, that Danny has done something and blown him up with Tess and all of that. The last shot we get of him having realized all of this and stewing about it is standing in the elevator and you just see him seething as the elevator doors close on him, which I think is a really great way to end him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the last we see of him in the movie and it's a good good exit. And that is the end of the heist. So all of the hijinks of the heist are done and we get the basking in the glory moment. Yeah, I mean, it's not that long in terms of the movie, but it is like they give you enough time to breathe and enjoy them having won the day. And right before we get to that sort of big emotional moment, there is a last moment with Tess and Danny. Yes. Where Tess sort of comes around. Yeah, and she chases out to the car and says, that's my husband, don't take him away. And and they kind of- A very efficient way of showing this. She has forgiven him. Yes. He's not ex-husband, or I know that guy, or no. I need to talk to him. It's that's my husband. Yeah, no, it's it's another well-written bit because it just gets exactly to what you need, and then the performances sell the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And he tells her, you know, I told you I knew what I was doing, but she says, but I didn't. <laughs> right. I think the nice little additional detail here. She's like, how long are you going to be? And he's like, I don't know, three to six months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I think uh, we're on to the fountains, right? We are on to the fountains. That's correct. Yeah. So then all the team gets to stand, and I think we hear Claire Delune. 
Lune. I was going to say it's Claire de Lune. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is the iconic thing from this film. Like if anybody remembers anything about Ocean's Eleven, typically it is this moment. Uh, yeah. This is a good moment. And uh, I think you know, one of the things I've heard about this movie was that they kind of set up the shot and Soderbergh told them to just leave the scene in whatever order they wanted to. And so they kind of just slowly drift away. And I, I think Saul is the last one to leave. Saul's the last yeah. one. They, and Rusty's the first. Yeah. And they all just kind of go their separate ways with the idea that they will not see each other again because they're all independently wealthy now and they can go do whatever they want. And that scene with them doing that, there's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's all music. It is out in front of the casino they just robbed, which has always sort of, yeah. yeah. always bothered me i mean especially for saul like he was a major player in this you could see they they thought he was dead yeah exactly he got (laughs) hauled away on an ambulance and had multiple interactions with the guy they stole from and basher's cones are still out there around that manhole or whatever that was in front of it it's nice it's a beautiful ending to a movie that has been visually striking already i mean it's a nice looking movie i mean they use vegas to good effect vegas appears in so many movies it's hard to do it in a fresh way but you know it always looks looks good and you know keeps the appeal of vegas without it getting too cartoonish you know mm-hmm. and they all slide away into the night and we fade to black and that could be the end of the movie but of course it is not yeah you gotta get a little tag here and the tag is the card that says three to six months later which, <laughs> which i think is that's great. a good yeah. game yeah. yeah and three to six months later we join rusty standing outside of a prison eating always eating back, always eating back in his comfort zone snacking on something in some sort of like the shirt that he's wearing shark suit yeah <laughs> he's waiting because coming out the front gate again in a tuxedo yeah. right so this is a call always back. always gets arrested in a tux always does that's here, a classy dude here comes danny and the improv set of lines that we get here from one to another is rusty saying i hope you were the groom <laughs> which is phenomenal <laughs> And Danny answering, it's not as good of a line and and put up against that one, which is like Ted Nugent wants his suit back or whatever. But yeah, I hope you were the groom. Ted Nugent, that's a reference that won't last the ages. Uh, They go out to the car. Yeah. And, you know, that's our last reveal there is that Tess is waiting in the car as well. I brought some of your things, I think, (laughs) says Rusty. I don't know if these belong to me, says Danny. And in the back seat is Tess waiting for him. Yeah. And they get one last nice little quippy interaction where she shows that she still had the ring. And Mm -hmm. I thought you sold it. You're a liar. You're a thief. It's a great little back and forth. And we get the kiss. We've been waiting for a kiss. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this movie ends on a 1963 Ford Falcon, as all movies should. (laughs) Driving away into... The sunset, proverbially. With but, Benedict's goons in pursuit. That's true. Yeah. There could be a sequel if we wanted one. Which I, I don't think, think there we ever did. will be. <laughs> yeah, and they were aware of them, too. You've got Ocean asking, where are they? Oh, yeah, they're over in the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They knew they'd be there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a little bit of a sequel setup, or it could just be a little stinger. You know, you're covered either way. It's a great ending. It moves quick. It feels good. If there was never another one, you would not feel cheated. Well, that's it. In only two episodes. (laughs) Covered a 90-minute movie. (laughs) Go watch it. Record your own podcast. (laughs) Opposing our points. Don't do that. (laughs) Just listen to this one again. And we're not even done yet. We've got more to go with this show. We're done with plot, thank God. But we're going to have more to this show, and we're going to do it when we come right back. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture-savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? 
visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. You are listening to Subgenre. We're talking about the 2001 Steven Soderbergh film Ocean's Eleven. Let's talk about some of the lines in it when we talk line please. Line please. Cut. Line please is our segment where we talk about our favorite bits of dialogue in a movie. And uh, I'm going to start because I started with one of my favorite lines as part of the intro to this episode. When Danny and Rusty are at Ruben's place at the beginning of the movie, when they're trying to convince him to come in and fund this thing, they've made the pitch and Ruben said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And Ruben explains why he's not going to do it and says, look, we all go way back and I owe you from the thing with the guy in the place and I'll never forget it. (laughs) To which Danny says, that was our pleasure. And Rusty replies, I'd never been to Belize. (laughs) So much backstory in such a short amount of time. In three lines. (laughs) But the I owe you from the thing with the guy in the place, I use it all the time. (laughs) That's a good one. I think Julia Roberts saying, I'm with Terry now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with Terry. (laughs) Terry is twice the man you could ever be. (laughs) I think if we can't choose Elliot Gould's necklines as a line from the film, I do like what Bernie Mac starts uh, ranting and, and talking about how they should call it white jack yes oh that's hard to beat that one you could take selections from most of the first scene that uh danny ocean and tess have together like you know like josh you were partial to uh danny saying they say i paid my debt to society and tess responding funny i didn't get a check yes (laughs) and there's a lot of other really good singers in there one uh, underappreciated line that we didn't get in the recap was um when linus is posing as the nevada gambling commission guy and trying to say that the bernie mac character has a long rap sheet he says Oh, he's got a rap sheet as long as my... Well, it's long. <laughs> Which is a college student I thought was just the funniest Oh, line. yeah. No, I mean, that's that's a great 2001 joke. And that's the be funny enough that you're memorable, but not so funny that, yes, that exactly. he remembers who you are. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of good lines. I think in this film, especially just the dialogue goes so quickly because the whole movie is just kind of on the express train towards the heist. And they, they do a great job of keeping it light and just banter here, there, bop. Bop, bop, back and forth and always moving forward at a great pace. Talking about underappreciated or, or under, yeah, underappreciated, underappreciated lines in the movie. Terry is on the phone and this is getting close to the fight, I think. And whatever the conversation has been to that point has been unpleasant. And he ends the phone call with, well, then inform Mr. Levin that he'll be better off watching the fight in front of his television at home. Surely he must have HBO. <laughs> and that's a reference to Barry Levin, who owned HBO at the time. Wow. <laughs> Ran HBO. Yeah, 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 that's a good that's a good inside joke. You know, we've talked about some of the other ones. Which one's the amazing yin? He's the little Chinese guy, which, you know, doesn't age well, but is a funny line in the yeah. context of yeah, the Young scene. screenwriters do not use that as an example nope. of one That's you true. will use in the year of our Lord 2022. <laughs> Most of these we've talked about in the course of the thing. So Run and Hide, I think, yeah, is, is super one. memorable. Ending. And I think Saul, when he's at the track, you know, he breaks late. Everybody knows this, which I think was one of Charlotte's favorite lines as well. 
it's hard to go through, kind of like with a few other movies, it's hard to go through and pick out your favorite lines because there's so many good ones because the whole movie is patter. Yeah, and it is. I mean, and, and but I think that also keeps there from being any like all-timer lines in it because it moves so quickly, you don't have kind of the weight behind some of the lines that you might get in another film. And sometimes even when you think you're getting that moment, like uh, Danny Ocean's like, you know, unless you have that hand and you bet the, bet the house and you win and you beat the house yeah. and then it's immediately undercut with, you practice that speech a lot? Like, yeah. It's like, <laughs> sure. it's Did like, I rush it? Yeah. yeah, you got a little too into it there. It was, you were trying to be a little too memorable. <laughs> I think the one I remember the best is where Brad Pitt's just leaning on the bar and you can just kind of see his eyes and Clooney's talking himself into getting another person. You think you need one more? You think we need one more. Okay, we'll get one more. You know, he's just kind of talking to himself. And But that's just pure George Clooney charisma carrying the whole scene. Yeah. This segment, I think, can kind of end here because I think we can all agree that the whole movie is just full of, of really excellent lines. And, and like you said, it's hard to pick out a good one. But maybe amongst this table of people, could we agree potentially that rising to the top of that is George Clooney ordering a whiskey and a whiskey? <laughs> and a whiskey, yes. I mean, I want to be half as cool as he is in that moment oh, man. once in my life. And yeah. that probably will never it's not going to happen. You know what? Now I'm going to make it happen <laughs> even more. This segment's over. Let's do Rave Rental or Refund. Woo! Rave Rental or Refund is our final thoughts on Ocean's Eleven 2001. We are saying, is it a rave? Is it something that I'm going to run and tell the masses about? You need to watch it now if you didn't watch it 25 years ago. Is it a rental? Yeah, it was fine. Not the best thing ever, but it works. Or is it a refund? I need my money back and I need it now. What say you, Alan Mall? Wow. It's... A classic film. I loved this movie when I was younger. I still really like it now. And so I'm going to give it a rave with one quick qualification, which is you can tell this movie was made 20 years ago in terms of some of the content that shows up in it. And also just the fact that there's so few like female characters that are given any kind of agency at all. And by few, I mean, Tess is arguably one, but a lot of the rest of them don't really get a lot of action and things. And yeah. I don't know, as a good male feminist, I'm just like, <laughs> come on, like, like let's, give, let's have some more roles for women in this one. Yeah, it is definitely a boys club movie. I would probably give a similar review. I'd say rave in that it's a movie that's very well made, that is very entertaining. I think I have a couple qualifications. Agreed. It's very dated now. Some of the humor is more on the kind of racist and sexist side than you might see now or that you would be comfortable with. The lack of women in the movie is a major problem, and I think it handicaps it quite a bit. And also, once you've seen it, you lose a lot of a what makes point. it special. Yeah. You know, like the suspense and the excitement makes so much of the enjoyment of it that once you've seen it once. But I think if you have never seen it, A... I hope you saw it before you listened to this. Oh, please. <laughs> but B, go see it. It's a good movie, and it's a good of its time movie, and it still holds up in a lot of ways, even though it's not maybe the movie I would want to see as much now. It is still what our generation thinks of when they think of heist films. Oh, yeah. Because this yeah. is by far like the biggest budget, like, you know, most popular one and everything else. And it's got just style to spare. Mm -hmm. It is like a stylish, cool, the charming thief idea is absolutely epitomized here. This is the most charming charming group of thieves. You oh, it's have. overflowing. Yes. No. I mean, it's almost too much charm for one movie. <laughs> right. I go with Rave, and I'm going to go slightly different than you guys, because I think that this movie is exceptional. I think that nearly everything about this, and I, you know, there are things here and there that I maybe would have done a little differently. Sorry, uh, Soderbergh, but take that, Steve. <laughs> uh, that'll put you in your place. Put that in your Oscar. Um, Boom! 
I think that nearly everything about this movie is flawless. I think that it's entertaining from start to finish. I think the performances are all at the top of their game, Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn excluded. I think that things like as small as like, you know, I would say small, but things like the soundtrack on point, everything about it works. I think that the writing is exceptional. And I understand the argument about there are bits and pieces in it that don't play well today. I 100% agree with that. They don't. But I think the thing that we've been saying is, you know, this is a movie that was of its time as a way to explain those away. I think that's a way to enjoy the movie mm-hmm. is look that's at it true. and say it's a movie of its time. And if you understand the context of when the movie came out and watch it with those eyes, I think it plays as a really, really entertaining piece of cinema. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, Fabian sent us a message and I wanted to read it for him. He says, my favorite thing about this movie is like it feels like a movie, you know, like a go to the theater film kind of movie, the kind of reason you go to watch something on the big screen. And I agree. It feels like an event. It feels like Hollywood. You know, I mean, it is. It does. It is very much like when Hollywood works, this is the kind of thing you think of. It's big. It's got full of star power. It's quick. It's fun. It's light. It kind of makes everything seem glamorous and cool. Yeah, I agree with Fabian on that. And Charlotte sent through a message and it says, <coughs> I hope I pronounced that correctly. (laughs) Guys, thank you so much for putting up with me, with this format, with this show, watching this movie and coming back for as many hours as you came back to get this thing done. This is so much fun. Yeah, we really, I love being being here and doing this. So hopefully we can do it again. Here's to more group episodes too. Yeah, that was such a fun Because if I'm ever not feeling funny, I can just look at you guys and be like, Oh, that's real not funny there. (laughs) (laughs) These guys are giving a masterclass in lack of jokes. And if I ever need anybody to keep continuing a thought when I run out of one, I can just look left to Alan and not to Nick. Nope. I'll just go, uh huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Correct. That is correct. This is typically the part in the show where I give everybody a chance to say what's going on in their life and, you know, plug anything they want to plug. And I assumed that others were going to be here for this one. So, <laughs> Fabian, I'm sorry, buddy. You don't get a chance to plug anything right now. Go plug yourself later. Um, Hello. But, uh, sorry, Charlotte. Alan, you get a second bite at the apple. What you got going on? Well, uh, by the time this airs, I will have had my uh, romantic comedy about the kilogram. The weight of everything we know will have gone up for its staged reading in Raleigh. So stay tuned for more on that. We're hoping to have a full production sometime soon. And uh, beyond that, you can follow me on Twitter at Mahlerballer, M-A-U-L-E-R-B-A-L-L-E-R at Twitter. It's an awful lot of spelling. (laughs) I don't like to spell. People on Twitter don't want to spell things. Nick, what about you? First of all, thanks so much for having us. This is really fun. And uh, if people are ever interested in the advertising side of things, our production company is at junctionroadpictures.com. And you can check us out on Instagram and such at junctionroadpics. And yeah, thanks for having us. And uh, I will say my enormous thank you to Alan Mall, to Nick Heim, to Fabian Marquez, to Charlotte Moore Lambert, and to all of you for sticking with us through these two episodes and through this second season of Subgenre. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being the good world. We will try to come back to you in season three, and we'll see you then. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest hosts, Fabian Marquez, Charlotte Moore Lambert, Nick Heim, and Alan Mall. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. That's it for season two, Charming Thieves. 
but you can listen to every single episode of Subgenre and our bonus content, The Pickup Shot, when you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to shows like this. We want to grow our listeners, so tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone else with a download button about our show. And if you will, please leave us a five-star review, thumbs up, or whatever else you can, because, and I know I say this often, but it's true, it is massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation, which you can find the link to, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes on our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. So long, Subgenre Season 2. And with your support, we'll be back in 2023 for Season 3. In the meantime, and as always, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap! Kabunki.